Everybody and welcome once again to the Brad Gilmore Show on demand. We are back with another edition of the episode, edition of the episode, edition of the show. Hope that y'all been doing well. Um, I'm excited that we're back second week in a row. I've got such a stacked. No, not the Pamela Anderson show starring uh, Christopher Lloyd as well. Stacked. It's ran for two seasons on Fox. I have a stacked show for you today. Gina Gershon is going to join us to talk about her directorial debut. Katie Sackhoff is Bo-Katan. She's talking to us about The Mandalorian. And Adam Carolla is joining us to talk about his 14 years of The Adam Carolla Show and his various projects. And also, a reunion of sorts if you're a fan of the movie Trivia Schmodown with my guy, Frankie Boy Janish Numbers, is back in the building all of them joining us today on the Brad Gilmore Show. If this is your first time listening, you know you know that I am uh, Brad Gilmore. Obviously, I'm the show's namesake. You can hear me weekly on ESPN 97.5 and 92.5 here in the Houston, Texas area with my man Booker T, where we have the Hall of Fame and we talk about pro wrestling, combat sports of all kind, and uh, a little bit of life as well. I'm all through Back to the Future the podcast uh, and the Back from the Future book. You can check me out on social media at Brad Gilmore on Instagram and Twitter or at Boat Gilmore on TikTok. You know, I was talking about a second ago, I mentioned the show Stacked that came on Fox back in the day starring Pamela Anderson. Pamela Anderson, such a renaissance as of late, right? I feel like the two 1990s figures who are having the best 2023 slash 2022 thus far, without a doubt, is Pamela Anderson and Brendan Fraser. Fra- Fraser? Fraser? I think it's Fraser. These two, at one point, were... I mean, Pamela Anderson, I don't think that if, if you were born past the year like 2000, probably, like I'm born in the early 90s, so if you were born past the year 2000, maybe 2002, you don't really understand how big of a deal Pamela Anderson was. To a young man growing up in the later 90s, early aughts, I mean, she was definitely the definition of dime piece <laughs> or whatever you want to say. She was the definition of hot. She was the definition of beautiful. She was the definition of sexy. She was the definition of all of it. You know, her and um, everyone of that time. But, but, you know, Pamela Anderson was like the one that people would rap about in songs. Eminem name drops her. Uh, Jay-Z. Jay-Z name drops her in his second verse to Big Pimpin'. How many of y'all remember the video version where Pimp C wouldn't be in the video at first? So they had like the second verse that Jay had and then they ended up, Pimp ended up being in the video but they didn't shoot it with Bun and Jay in Miami or whatever, like Pimp shot it here in Houston. Anyway, the second verse that Jay-Z had, he said, uh, my stamina be enough for Pamela Anderson Lee, right? She was just one of those it girls. She was like the J-Lo's. She was, I guess, like 
If there was a one-to-one comparison, I guess it would be Kim Kardashian. I guess. I don't know if that's the best comparison, but that's kind of who she was of the day. Obviously, there's the uh, sex tape connection there, um, which is doesn't define either one of those women's careers, in my opinion. Um, I have a lot of respect for Kim Kardashian and Pamela Anderson, for that matter. But I watched, speaking, so I watched the Pamela Anderson documentary. This is where I'm trying to get to. And they spent a lot of time talking about Pam and Tommy, which is the Hulu show that came out with Lily James and Sebastian Stan, where they kind of t- uh, fictionalized the time where the sex tape scandal was happening and Pam was in Baywatch and the number one sex idol on the planet. What is it? Sex idol? It's not sex idol. What is the word? Sex symbol. Number one sex symbol on the planet. Kind of has that time frame. And um, they talk about in the documentary how she was very like put off by this. Which I understand because it's opening an old wound. But I will be honest with you. When that show came out, my wife and I sat down and watched the first episode. I think maybe the first two were out the first night. I can't remember. But we sat and watched and we were all the way in. We were in on Pamela Anderson. We were in on Tommy Lee. We went down a whole Baywatch thing. Um, and and it just so happened that that show, I think, came out early last year. It must have been February-ish. Maybe March-ish. And it just so happened to line up with Pamela Anderson being Roxy Hart in Chicago. Now, I've talked to Maya who's in Chicago before on this show, um, or on my show, The Collection. Huge Chicago fan. I love that musical. I love the movie with Richard Gere and and Renee Zellweger and, of course, uh, Catherine Jett-Jones, who's just another great beauty and great actress, great talent, who's also having somewhat of a renaissance, being in Wednesday on Netflix and National Treasure on Disney+. Plus. But Pamela happened to be playing the Roxy Hart role, and we were so in on Pamela Anderson from the net from the Hulu show that we bought tickets to go fly to New York City just to go see Chicago and see Pamela Anderson in Chicago as Roxy Hart. And I will say something, and I don't care who, who knows it, but Pamela Anderson rocked it as Roxy Hart. She was so good, uh, still stunning, still gorgeous, but I love this role for her because she was able to show off her talent as an actress. And obviously, when people think of her, they think of, you know, running slow on the beach in a bikini. Which, you know, obviously, I don't blame you. It's a great mental image to have. <laughs> but she was so funny. And she had a lot of moments. And, and please, people, like, li- listen to what I'm saying here she, before you judge me. She had a lot of moments that, to me, And even my wife made comment of it, and I had thought it, and my wife brought it up when we were having dinner afterwards in New York. She reminded me a lot of Lucille Ball with this great comedic timing. And I think after the Pam and Tommy show, she jumps back into the public pop culture consciousness. She does this Broadway show to great critical acclaim. Then she comes out with a book and Netflix documentary earlier this year both of which uh, my my wife's reading the book. I watched the documentary. And um, I think that she's in a real Pamasance. And it's only a matter of time until someone, either at one of these Netflix shows, one of the streamers, 
or some movie franchise or some upcoming comedy or something puts Pamela Anderson in a movie or in a TV show. Because even in that show Stacked that I watched for two reasons, one for Pamela Anderson and one for Christopher Lloyd, she was funny in that show. Now, she was playing type, a kind of ditzy, hot, blonde girl. But I think that she can do so much more than that. And she was so funny in Chicago that I think it's only a matter of time before we see her finally, after all these years, I think she's in her mid-50s now, finally have that quintessential role, you know, have that role that she'd been waiting on. We thought it was going to be barbed wire, other than having an iconic poster. Uh, The movie is not that watchable. I've tried. Um, it's not that great of a movie, but you know, I mean, I like bad movies to a certain extent. I remember watching her in barbed wire. I remember it not being good, but then I remember watching some movie that she was in called raw justice, which is a very questionable title. Um, and I remember liking that movie, not so much because she was in it. I mean, she added to it, but I actually ended up liking the movie and I know it's not a great movie, but the story got me anyway. Do you think Pamela Anderson is going to be in something meaningful? I don't know. Or maybe she's going to be like my first guest, Gina Gershon. Gina Gershon is directing for the very first time. If y'all don't know Gina Gershon, I'm sure you've seen her in something. Uh, She's been in a couple of my favorite shows, Psych, where she was in American Duos, uh, where she kind of played the uh, Paula Abdul role. She's the uh, dry cleaner in Curb Your Enthusiasm. She was in Red Heat with Arnold Schwarzenegger. She was in Face Off with Travolta and Nicolas Cage. I mean, she's been in so many movies and television shows. If you look at her IMDb, it's insanity. And she's finally directing her very first movie, 12 Desperate Hours. And it is going to be debuting this weekend on Lifetime. And she joins me right now to talk about it. Gina, how are we doing? Good morning. I'm doing okay, Brad. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How does it feel to hear those words? The director of the film (laughs) joins us. It feels pretty good. (laughs) I like it. (laughs) This is your directorial debut again. The film is called 12 Desperate Hours. I have a lot of questions for you, but first, what is the film about for people who want to tune in? Mm, It's about a, a woman who's very kind and compassionate. And almost to a fault, has a hard time, uh, you know, standing up for herself, is very protective of her kids and family. And then one day this guy, Denny, comes in, you know, questionably with, you know, you don't know if he's crazy or not crazy, but he's obsessively trying to get to his girlfriend. And he has a sawed-off shotgun. And in order to protect her family, she says, I'll drive you. I'll drive you around. Just, like, leave my kids alone. and kind of, you know, through her kindness and compassion and actually just talking to this guy who really has been beaten down by the symptom, not to excuse the fact that he's killed a couple of people already, um, but she does prevent him from killing other people and herself. And to me, you know, that really spoke to about America and about our shared and lived experiences that present the problem and the solution. And so that's why I wanted to tell this story. So it's based on a story, you know, 
Yeah, yeah, being based on a true story. And so you're, you're saying that you found this script and wanted to direct it, or were you approached to direct? How did that kind of come about? No, I've been looking for something to direct and for the right opportunity to present itself. And then um, Tanya Lopez at Lifetime, she sent it over. She said, I really think you should be directing. And she sent over a few things. Um, and, you know, it's it's not like acting. You know what I mean? It's like you but acting, you, you work on it for several months or however long, and then you're done. For acting, you're really with it for a while. So you have to connect to it in a different way. And when she sent this story over, I really felt I don't know I was feeling very frustrated in our world and I'm sick of reading about another mass shooting and you know I just it really spoke to me and I thought it was interesting because it it did show the, the problem and presented a solution you know I just think I just thought it was amazing and that, that just that her compassion and her empathy really and just talking to someone who really doesn't talk to a lot of people and you know everyone kind of treats pretty badly just um helped him out and let him turn himself in now when you're dealing with a subject matter like this uh on set obviously there has to be a certain gravity that's brought to and that's where the actors come in but as the director what was your process with the actors did you kind of um allow them that kind of creative freedom did you have a specific vision in mind for how you wanted the scene to play out and kind of made them stick to that vision kind of what was your process with the actors um well you know we had very you know a movie like this is it's, you know, uh, almost an hour and a half, and we really only had 15 days to shoot it, which turned into 13 days with no overtime. So that was what my 12 desperate hours were every day, <laughs> trying to get through the day. Um, you know, I just cast it really well. You know, I knew I had to have actors that I could really depend on, who really understood it, um, what I was trying to do with it. You know, Samantha Mathis, I've known her for years, and she embodies empathy and compassion and she's so kind so and she's just solid and professional and I knew she had my back and you know a lot of these actors they kind of wanted to do it because it's my first full-length feature um when I found Harrison Thompson I just I literally a friend of mine mentioned him to me and I just watched something on his Instagram which was a kind of a, a joke like a goofy thing on something and I just knew he was the guy. And after speaking to him, you know, for about, you know, 45 minutes, I, I knew he had the sensitivity and, you know, I didn't want to present these caricatures. I, you know, Lifetime, um, when I found it, I, I also wanted to kind of flip it on its side and really see it from his point of view. I mean, we know, we hear about these guys coming in with guns and, and I just wanted to, I really wanted to get underneath it and see why this guy, you know, did this where he was coming from so we could kind of have a little bit more understanding and maybe, you know, deal with this issue in a different way. I, and you, you hit it right on the head, you know, casting is so important. And, and I want to ask you this. So as somebody who's been in front of the camera for so long, do you think that there is a, uh, I don't know, for the actors in your film, do you think that they almost kind of respected your opinion from the directorial chair because you've been in the camera so uh, in front of the camera so much? Kind of like you know Clint Eastwood making that transition. He's one of these regarded directors because he knows what the experience is like on the other side. Do you feel like the actors take the uh, direction a little bit better coming from someone like you? Well, I, I think they feel protected by me because I understand what's going on. You know, 
Like, uh, if we're doing a really sensitive scene and it's very emotional, I will just make sure we zero in on that and get a close-ups right away. And, you know, sometimes scheduling isn't so sensitive to the actor and their emotional needs. And it was really crucial in this. Also, we had no time, you know. So right away, I'm like, there are no scripts allowed on the set. No, know everything and we will dive into it. And, um, you know, I was excited to see what they brought. And, you know, if I wanted to judge it one way or the other, I just, I really had a great group, you know, between David Conrad and Samantha and Tina Alexis and um, Harrison was really my linchpin, though, because I, if I, if he didn't work, I didn't want to make this cliched, oh, I'm the killer with a gun looking for my, you know, it, it just, everyone were, was very serious and, um, you know, hiring the locals, some locals, because it was a lower budget film, that was a little bit challenging at times because some, you know, all of a sudden one of um, Ben Kane, he got COVID in the middle of it, one of the actors. So I turned to this, one of these cops who looked great and said, can you read some lines? And he was like, oh, yeah, sure. So I said, great, you're in. So, you know, I was, you know, grabbing people and and directing people who had never acted before. And they were really terrific. I just think if you're very clear and tell people exactly what it is you're going for, they generally, you know, they generally do it. But casting is everything. Casting is everything. Well, congratulations on your directorial debut. We're all going to be watching 12 Desperate Hours this Saturday at 7 p.m. Central on Lifetime and Sunday again at 3 Central. Gina, thanks for joining us this morning. Congrats again. Thank you so much, Brad. Man, you're just so great. To talk to Gina Gershon, um, we could have talked more. I would love to talk to her about Psycho, really about Curb. I love, I mean, I'm a Seinfeld fan. Like, I come from the school of Seinfeld, I like to say as far as the, the kind of comedy that really tickles me. I mean, I, I find myself quoting Seinfeld or Curb weekly, at, at the minimum, weekly. I uh, talk about those shows. And her, her role in Curb, or anyone's role in Curb, I find to be fascinating because the, the improv of it, the dialogue is not written. The scene is set up by Larry. The situation is set up. And it really is a situational comedy, but it's so, in my opinion, like diametrically opposed to the school of Seinfeld to where it was they slaved over those words in the writer's rooms, coming up with every line and coming up with the, the funny catchphrases like the yada, 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 or the anti-dentite or the uh, they're real and they're spectacular or uh, you double dip the chip or whatever comes up. Um, the Seinfeld piece of it, right? The Seinfeld side slaved over the words, whereas the Curb side, they had the situation that's funny from Larry David, but the dialogue is all improvised. And I just, I guess they, what they probably do is they run several takes and then Larry goes, oh, hey, what you just said there, you know, that was funny. Say that again, but just like go somewhere else with it. I'm sure that's kind of how it goes. And then they cut together the funniest parts. But I would, I would have been fascinated to know more about that show. But you know what? Comedy's hard. Comedy's hard. Having a successful comedy podcast, even harder. Adam Carolla has done that. Adam Carolla was the godfather for a lot of people of podcasting. Although it had invented, been invented prior to him, although there were podcasts that had a listenership before him, he really helped usher in, whether people know it or not, this new wave of podcasting. Without 
Corolla, you know, we probably wouldn't be doing this show in this format, right? I mean, I would have never made the jump from the online radio that I was doing at the time into podcasting. And that was 2013. That was a couple years after Corolla had done it. And when, like with anything, when you jump into it um, and you start to understand the platform or the, the I, want, I don't want to say art form. Melissa Rivers would kill me if I said art form. When you understand the medium, is a word I'm looking for, that you're in, you start looking for, okay, who's doing it the best, right? And for podcasting at the time, no one was doing it better than Adam Carolla. He would run it like it was a legit radio show, but it was a podcast. And still, back then, there was a bit of a, I guess a bit of a, uh, in the same way people used to look at pro wrestling, you know, come from the wrestling world, where it was kind of like, oh, you do that wrestling thing? It's kind of, it was kind of the same, oh, you do that podcast thing? That's kind of weird. Why do you do that? Well, you're just not good enough to get on a real radio station or you're not good enough to have a real show. So you do a podcast to the internet. What's the internet? You know, it, it, there's definitely that mentality to it. So when I made the, the jump in 2013, after doing online radio for a couple years, I was hit with two questions. One, why are you doing a podcast? Or two, what is a podcast? And so I would listen to people like Adam Carolla to try to understand the best way to format one of these kind of shows. And he did it so well. So I'm excited to welcome to the show the pod father in many respects. He has several podcasts, but the crown jewel of the Corolla crown is the Adam Corolla show. And you can find new episodes every single weekday on podcast one or adamcarolla.com. And he joins us right now. Adam, how we doing, ma'am? Thanks for having me. Hey, you know what? Look, thanks for coming on the show. First off, Adam Corolla show. 14 years and going, I'm sure when you started the show, you're like, what the hell is a podcast? And now look at the world that we're in. Everything's a podcast. I know it's so crazy. I mean, people, I, I didn't even tell people what I did for a living when I started because people are like, what's a pod card? Never <laughs> even heard of that. That's not a job. And so it is incredible that there, I, I think there's like 2 million podcasts on iTunes right now. It's incredible. I mean, and there's literally a podcast for everything. Whatever your niche is, whatever your interest is, there's one that follows just that and just that only and covers it 24-7. Are you kind of uh, blown away by how not only, obviously podcasts were always, in my opinion, they were going to get to the level they are now, but are you surprised by like how much production now goes into the podcast before it was like, Hey, we got this board from radio shack and a couple of microphones. We're going to hit record and hope that this works. And now you look at stuff. They're so well produced. It's like a television show. Yeah. I mean, it, it makes sense. Uh, anything that's in its infancy, is going <clears> to <throat> be kind of rough around the edges. Uh, you know, I'm assuming but as money comes in and people invest in the in the product, it's going to keep growing. But um, no, nobody foresaw this, or if they did, they sure as hell didn't tell me. <laughs> um, and you've been able to kind of spur off of your podcast and do so many other projects. You know, you've written several best-selling books. A movie that you did um, was so awesome. I love the movie Road Hard. When you, um, I remember listening to your podcast back in whatever that must have been, 2013, 2014, when he first started talking about it. And I actually was one of the people who helped uh, 
contribute to the uh, the fundraising for the movie uh, with your kind of GoFundMe that you did for it. That movie came out so well. Uh, were you proud of how the, the end product of that film came out? Yeah, you know, movies are hard and they're really difficult to get off the ground and they take a lot of energy to make. <clears throat> and I was proud of it. I'm, I've made two movies. But the thing that's funny about Road Hard is I made two movies. One of them's called The Hammer and uh, the other's Road Hard. And everyone likes The Hammer more. So <laughs> over the years, I'm just like, oh, yeah, The Hammer. Sure, you saw The Hammer. So I was surprised. <clears throat> Sorry, when you said I saw your movie, because everyone who says I saw your movie and I loved it says I love The Hammer, which is a boxing movie I made. No, well, what I loved about Road Hard is it really was about, you know, I mean, because for people who didn't see the movie, you play a character who was successful at one point in time and then kind of fell off a little bit from the public consciousness and was a road comedian and, and did a lot of the things, as we say, for a hot dog and a handshake, you know, going to these uh, local clubs, trying to make it work, and then having your um, kind of a journey back into the spotlight. The, when you wrote, directed that film, did and you did, uh, you wrote The Hammer as well, the screenwriting process, do you enjoy the writing process for these movies? Yeah, you know, it's something different. It, it, you know, to, to say, like, do you enjoy writing a book or do you enjoy doing stand-up or do you enjoy doing a, a TV show or do you enjoy doing a podcast? I like doing whatever I wasn't doing the day before. <clears throat> Sorry, I got a frog in my throat. But so for me, touring, doing stand-up, doing tons of podcasts and talk shows and stuff like that, it's fun just to sit down and write a movie, but if I did it all day, every day, I'd probably want to get back to doing stand-up or want to get back to doing um, <clears throat> to doing uh, podcasting or whatever it is. So the, the key is really just the variety. Write a book, write a screenplay, do stand-up, make a podcast. That's the fun part. But, I mean, and, and the thing is, you know, obviously everything you do has the comedy that you bring to it, but they all stretch different muscles. Like writing a book, I, I wrote a book uh, in 2020 and in 2022, I had two come out. And it is the, in my opinion, like the most arduous, worst creative process that I've gone through. Like when I was finished with it, I was like, oh my God, I'm so happy that I got this finished. But during the process of it, it was to me at, at times sitting in your room, looking at a computer screen, for hours on end, doing research, trying to come up with editing. Man, it's such a tough one. I'd rather just turn the microphones off and go. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I'm much more sort of um, immediate gratification. So I like talking into a mic and doing this kind of stuff every day. But, you know, there are times when you want to go out and party and drink and have a good time. And there's like times when you want to sort of cuddle up and watch a movie and have a cup of cocoa or something. And I think of writing books or writing the screenplay as the sort of times, those kind of quiet times where you're just going, I'm staying in on Saturday night and just watching a movie and having a drink. That's what the screenplay is or the book is to me. Now, when we talk about you know, everything that you're doing right now, you're obviously the Adam Carolla show, most popular daily podcast in, in human history has been the most downloaded by Guinness book of world records, things of that nature. You have to be 
a very opinionated guy to have an audience tune into you for that many years and for that consistency and that many people. Um, I want to hear what you have to think about this next topic, because there was a lot of consternation, I guess, in the media last week when uh, Don Lemon of CNN had his comment about Nikki Haley and, and women being in their prime in their 20s and 30s, maybe their 40s. And it kind of uh, opened up a larger conversation about ageism in America. Now, Nikki Haley was talking about how there should be a cutoff for the presidency. You, After a certain amount of time, maybe you shouldn't be able to run anymore or have some sort of mental aptitude test. Do you feel like we live in a, in a I hate to even use an ism, but an ageism or ageist society? Because the, the reason I ask is my uncle was a, a pilot for Continental, and he had a spectacular sparkling record. No issues ever. Never missed a plane. Always came in on time. Great record. But when he turned 65, they said, you got to get out of here, pal. All right. There might be something that happens. Do you think that there is an ageism that we're working through in society or should there be kind of cutoffs just based upon increased risk? Well, it's funny. I was just talking about this yesterday in my podcast and I cited commercial airline pilots as an example which is after a certain age or all throughout your career, you have to be tested because there are people's lives in the balance. And there's certainly people's lives in the balance when you're making policy decisions at that level, especially if you're the president of the United States, hell, you can start wars uh, across the world. And so I agree with Nikki Haley, especially since we have a president who seems to be compromised psychologically to some degree, yeah, if you're going to be put into that pilot seat, then we need to make sure that you're up to the job. And what if, of, of all jobs to have a competency test, I would say that'd be the number one job to have the competency test. And I agree. Um, so I'm, I'm with you. And, you know, as far as your uncle goes, um, I, you know, I wish they would just have a test every year and they could go on till 70 or 75. I agree. I mean, to me, it's not so much the age, just so long as, yeah, you're, you're mentally and physically still fit for the job. But I, I guess that there's there comes some argument that, hey, just at a at 65 or at 70, there's an increased risk of something happening that we can't detect on any kind of test ahead of time. So I kind of understand it. But let me ask you one more thing. Adam Corolla, we're talking to you right now. You can find. More about him on adamcarolla.com, the Adam Carolla Show. You can get wherever podcasts are listened to. You had a book that came out last year. Everything reminds me of something. Advice, answers, dot, 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 but no apologies. Why no apologies, Adam Carolla? Because they just begat more apologies. Once you become the person who apologizes, then the woke mob just comes after you to apologize for everything. So I just thought I would just put it out there that I don't apologize. I never apologize. And, and for that, I get left alone. Nobody ever asked me to apologize. You, you, you figured out the secret. You figured out the secret to, uh, to get out of this social media world. But Adam Carolla, thanks for joining us this morning. Check out the Adam Carolla Show at adamcarolla.com for more information about everything that he's up to. Adam, thanks so much, man. Thanks for having me. Oh, man. Adam Carolla, always opinionated. You know, I, I got to appreciate somebody with an opinion. I feel like we don't challenge ourselves enough, right, when it comes to how we think. I, I, I don't think I'm breaking any new ground here by saying that. But I truly believe there's a phrase that I heard. I think it was on you know Instagram or, or Twitter or something. Um, it was, 
listen to everyone and don't listen to anyone. And I think what the sentiment behind that was is listen to everybody's opinion, right? Listen to it. Try to understand where they're coming from. Figure out their pathology of thinking. How did they come to this conclusion? Why do they feel the ways that they do? Is it factually based? Is it emotionally based? Is it whatever it is? So listen to everyone, but don't listen to anyone in the sense of come up with a conclusion for yourself. Don't just take somebody's word at face value. Um, you know, trust but verify, <laughs> as a uh, president once said, which I think is is great. And to me, and I'm not going to venture off in, into politics on this show ever, but I will say I listen to when it comes to like my news sources or political commentators, because I, I am very interested in politics in the sense of I don't want to be involved with it, but I stay up with it because I do think it's important. And the older that you get, the more you realize those decisions actually do <laughs> uh, make a big difference to you. But I listen to everybody. Like literally, I will listen to anyone and everyone because I guess my philosophy is I can't believe something is true or I can't fully say these are my beliefs if I never hear what the other side to that belief is, right? Like I am a religious person and I married into a family who has a different religious background than mine. Now, for most people, or for a lot of people, or at least the people in the generation prior to mine, uh, the, the Gen Xers, that would be a big no-no from the beginning. Um, but for me, I was like, hey, I'm willing to listen, right? I'm going to come with an open mind and an open heart always. And I feel like that's how we need to approach things. So when people say things maybe like politically, that I don't necessarily agree with or disagree with, but necessarily agree with, I always listen to where they're coming from. Um, we are going into a political season, 2024 presidential election. I love elections. I love presidential politics, just historically speaking. There's a great podcast called Presidential where they break down all the uh, contributions and controversies of the 40 Five men who've held that position, although we've had 46 presidential administrations, we've had 45 men who've held the title president of the United States. And um, so I am fascinated by the 2024 election. And I just encourage everybody to do their own research and really think about who you're voting for. Because Booker T said this to me one time when he was flirting with running for mayor of Houston. I think he said this on Neil Cavuto's show when Neil Cavuto interviewed him. I remember sitting in the green room listening to this, and I thought it was really smart. He said a lot of the times we vote in the same way we pick like our soda. He said if your dad drank Coca-Cola, you're probably going to drink Coca-Cola. But if your dad drank Pepsi, you're probably going to drink Pepsi, right? You kind of go with what your family went with. And for all my young people who 2024 is going to be the first time you're getting able to vote. I really can't stress enough to you. Don't just go with the crowd, right? 
come to your own conclusions. And if it happens to be the same as all of your friends and neighbors and family members, that's great. Awesome. I'm happy for you. If it happens to be contrarian to your friends and family and neighbors, don't let that dissuade you from making that decision, right? I think that goes for both sides of the political spectrum. There are a lot of people who come from Republican families to where if they voted for a Democrat, they'd be shunned. And if they were a Democrat and they voted Republican, they'd be shunned. But just always keep an open mind because we, we, we're too involved in team warfare, right, of my side versus your side. Just look at the individuals who are on the ballot and make the determination of what you feel like would be the best option. And remember, there's not only ever two options. They're two strong parties, and everyone always says if you go a third party, maybe you're throwing your vote away, and, and perhaps you are. But the only way you can ever change the two-party system if you don't like it is by voting for a third-party candidate, so it's a little bit of a catch-22. But nevertheless, uh, 2024 is on the horizon. Go in with an open mind and open heart. I know a lot of times it's easy to be down on politics, especially in the last almost decade say the last eight years, have been very tumultuous, probably the most tumultuous time I can remember in my adult life or my life in general. Um, but always going with an open mind. How did I get on that? I don't even know. Thanks, Adam Carolla. <laughs> Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, let's switch gears. You want to talk about one divisive topic? Let's move to another one. Star Wars has become ever and increasingly divisive. As far as, as far as a fan base goes for the motion pictures. However, the television shows, aside from Book of Boba Fett, have been all killer, no filler. And season three of The Mandalorian starts next week. And I'm so excited for it because it's everybody's favorite Star Wars property. And on the show today, joining me right now, we are talking to the woman that plays Bo-Katan on the show. You know her as Katie Sackoff. Katie, welcome to the show. Good morning to you. I'm so excited for season three. How are we feeling? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. Good morning. Good morning to you. Look, first off, congrats on another season, another successful season I'm sure that everyone's going to love. How does it feel? Are you excited that people are finally going to get to see season three? Oh, gosh. I, I would be excited about this show even if I wasn't on it. So um, I'm really excited about this season, though. There's a lot of, like, you know, blood and 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 heart in this season so i'm really excited well i know that um everybody's been eagerly anticipating this one especially coming off of season two which is one of the one of the best i think season two of mandalorian is one of the best things disney plus has done overall that second season was so great i have so many questions about it before we jump into the interview anymore though we do have katie and you don't know this but we have a mutual friend and i was texting oh. i was texting with him last night and I said, hey, guess who I'm talking to tomorrow? Katie Sackhoff. He goes, please tell Katie I said hello. Mr. Christian Harloff. I was going to say it's got to be Christian. <laughs> I love Christian. I know. Um, he's, you know, Christian and I have been friends now for a super long time, um, 20 years. Um, and he's he's one of the good ones. So I, I count myself lucky to to that he's in my life. Yeah, definitely. Love Christian Harloff. Now, okay, let's talk about it, though. Mando Season 3. What can people expect? I know that that's, like, a hard question, especially for a Disney property because we are so hush-hush. But, like, what yes. what can we – I mean, because last season we set the bar high. Like, it was a high season. You did. So what do we do now? Yeah, you'd, you'd think it's tough to, to climb that high again, right? Right. 
Um, you know, I, I obviously I'm not going to give any spoilers away. Um, um, I wouldn't want to know <laughs> what happens to me right. if I do that. But at the same time, it, this is it's everything that you've come to love about the Mandalorian. Um, but this season is epic. It is big. And, um, there are a lot of moving parts to it. And I think that the fans are going to just be so excited. You mentioned the fans and, and I'm sure you've found this out over your time being a part of the star Wars universe. There are very few fandoms like star Wars, uh, good, bad, Mm -hmm. or indifferent. They are a passionate fan base, myself included. We love our star Wars. What has the fandom yeah. been like for you? Like, what has that experience been like being, you know, in this massive universe that everybody the world around loves? I'm sure you've had some yeah. incredible, unique experiences that, that not many people get to have. I have, you know, so one of the things that I love about the sci-fi community is how inclusive it is. Um, and it's been an honor to be a part of it for, you know, going on 25 years now. So, um I love the fans. I, I, it's why I have a job. Um, and I, I, it means a lot to me. Now the, the Star Wars fans are incredibly loyal and incredibly vocal. And, um, you know, uh, it's, it's passion, you know what I mean? And, and anytime you have passion for something, um, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're going to get loud about it. Um, so emotions are going to run wild. And, um, it's meant a lot to me, you know, from the moment I first started playing Bo-Katan like over 10 years ago, um, they've always welcomed me and with open arms. That being said, I also think that Bo-Katan was the nice, like sweet spot where, where she wasn't in too much of Clone Wars and Rebels that, that people had, like, they had an opinion about her, but not a lot of people knew too much about her. So the fact that she's coming into, you know, Mando season two and then now in three, um, I just think that people are going to learn a lot more about her and, and, um, you know, she doesn't, she's not black and white, so I don't know if you're going to love her or hate her, but she's there. So (laughs) get used to it. (laughs) (laughs) She's there. Get used to it. You know what? Well, the thing is, we talk about the passion of Star Wars fans. I think that there are two names that put all Star Wars fans at ease, and that's Dave Filoni and Jon Favreau and their influence that they've had on this series in doing television right for Star Wars for so long. Can you talk about what um, what kind of presence they bring to the to the set and and how kind of reassuring to have them there is? Because I'm sure they help steer the ship the right way if we feel like we're yeah. sailing the opposite direction. No, absolutely. And I think you got it right. I think that that those guys steering the ship fills people with a sense of ease. And, and it's, it's true. And cause first and foremost, they're fans, they respect the world. They respect the timeline. They re- they respect the previous stories that came before them. They respect the fans. They respect all of it. And I think that that's largely, you know, had an, such a, such a big effect on them and is the biggest part of what makes them so successful at what they do with this. Um, that being said, having them on set with us every single day, you know, the knowledge of Dave, um, is something you just, it's, it's unmatched. Um, and, and working with someone like John who, who has so much, love and admiration for this property and loves to being a filmmaker is, and he's been around for so long. I could literally sit and talk to him and um, take his advice 
all day long. He's just so good at what he does. And and I I love that they are my bosses. Um, the Mandalorian season three debuts on Disney Plus on March 1st. Don't miss it. We're talking to Katie Sackoff right now. A couple last questions for you, uh, Katie. Now, season two was big for me because not only am I a Star Wars fan, I'm a professional wrestling fan my entire life. And to have Mercedes <laughs> Renato, to have Sasha Banks, Mercedes Monet as a part of the, the show, I thought she brought such a great presence to the screen. How was it working with Mercedes? She's awesome. Like, you know, I went to my first WWE match to boo at her, um, which is supposedly what I was supposed to do. I had such a hard time booing, but I did it. Um, and she's such a professional, you know, she works her butt off. I've never met somebody that, that works as hard as I do. <laughs> and she, you know, she, she might have me, she might have me beat, you know, she's, she's constantly hustling and, 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 um, she's a joy to be around. So, um, I expect big things out of her. Now, final question for you, Katie. I'm putting you on the spot. We've been talking about Star Wars fandom. I have to ask you because I feel like this says a lot about where we are with our Star Wars love. Are you an original trilogy, prequel trilogy, or sequel trilogy kind of person? So I'm original, um, but I also have a fond love for every single property. Um, and I think they fit in the timeline. If you If you if you watch them in the order that they're meant to be in, I think that there is an aspect of every film that can be appreciated for, for what it added to the universe. And I, I think sometimes we have to, we have to appreciate things for what they are and instead of what we wanted them to be, I guess. So I, I love them all. Um, you know, but uh, you know, I also, love cheesy Christmas movies and um, I'm an e I'm an easy mark. <laughs> I'm, I'm an easy mark too, Katie. I love all Star Wars and I know I'm going to love <laughs> season three of the Mandalorian Disney plus March 1st. Katie, thanks so much for taking the time this morning. Congratulations on the new show and all your success. Oh, thank you so much. My pleasure. Have a good day. You too. Katie Sackoff, Georgia peach. That's what I'm gonna call her. Uh, just an incredible incredibly nice person and we could have talked more about star wars and you know what i am in a star wars talking mood and so right now i teased it at the beginning of the show we're going to talk to an old friend of mine we're going to talk a little bit of star wars i want to talk to him about star wars i want to talk to him a little bit about the mcu that we talked about last week and we're going to be playing a game of Rotten Tomatoes. If you don't know how that's played, I um, actually got the inspiration from Adam Carolla. Shout out to Adam Carolla. Um, but we're going to go into the rules for you, and that's probably how we'll end the show this week. Welcome on, my man, at FrankieJ29 on all social media, the one and only Frank Janish. Frank, how we doing, my man? I'm doing good, Brad. How are you, man? I'm good. I'm good. Welcome to the Brad Gilmore Show. Um, it's fun to have you here. You know, for people who don't know, Frank and I, have known each other for um, five six years, something, something more more than half a decade, I, I guess. Are we at? Are we past the half a decade? I think moment? we are now. You know, Frank. I we're gonna yeah. we're gonna we're going on like six something years. Yeah, we're gonna start this way. I have a bit of a beef with you. Oh, who doesn't? But go ahead. <laughs> more than a bit. Um, now, Frank. For people who don't know, I won't I won't go too much into as we say in wrestling your shoot job. But you have, let's just say, access and ability to fly places that you might want to go. Now, I mean, is this my mother? <laughs> now, in October of 2021, 
I moved into a certain facility in which I still inhabit, a.k.a. my house. Mm-hmm. And I set up this beautiful studio. And um, there's on this side of the wall, I'm pointing. Uh, we're, Frank, and, Frank is in L.A. right now. Yeah. That's where he lives. Um, and we're doing this on a, on a stream yard. I'm pointing at the wall, right? And on the other side of that wall is a guest bedroom that I've said has Frank's name on it since we moved in. <laughs> and you have not taken me up on this offer to come to Houston. What What is the deal? Why, why have you not come down to Texas? You know, a great question. Uh, one that I don't have a good answer for you. I, I really don't. Well, you don't have good than... answers on anything. But... <laughs> well, <laughs> well, see, you should have known this was going to happen. You should have known. Um, no, I, you know what? Sometimes you get you get lost in the in the work work life, and and you don't make time for yourself. Sometimes you know I can, I'm guilty of that, where it's just you know you got to stay on the grind sometimes, and you got to do what you got to do. But I do need to start traveling some more in general. Mm-hmm. And uh, Brad Gilmore's residence uh, is at top of the list for sure. Um, because I would love to come out there and, and see everything you got going on. Cause it looks great. Yeah, man. No, you should come out. We'll have some, some steaks. You know what I mean? Uh, which seems that. to be like a real Texas thing. Um, and we can have a little, we can have a little dinner party about it, but man, Hey man, look, I've been meaning to catch up with you for a while because for people who don't know, we did this show called the Schmodown rundown for a long time, which was where Frank and I would talk about this <laughs> movie trivia game show called the schmodown and what when i think about it now i'm thinking about how ridiculous is that sound as a sentence to say out loud but yeah i mean we were wild we were you know neck deep in the schmodown how has it been for you the uh the come down from the schmodown since it stopped uh middle of last year well you know what it's kind of funny because i'm still very much living in a schmodown type of world because since the show ended um we are well, i say we but the schmodown christian harloff who the owner operator of the movie trivia schmodown uh set up a archive channel the mts archive channel and so uh he asked me if i would be in, you know could run that and get all the old matches every single match up on this channel so i've actually been uploading matches from the first season onward you know um uploading all these matches so i'm kind of like reliving the showdown history one season at a time and so it's, it hasn't compl- hasn't like completely left my life in a way uh that it has for others who were on the show or involved with the show because i'm still uploading matches like oh i remember this i remember that i'm reliving memories every day as i upload these older matches started at season one right now we're at the tail end of season four. So we're halfway through, almost halfway. Yeah, we're like halfway through the entire run of the show. And uh, so I can't say that, you know, my life has been that much different other than the fact that they're not new episodes of the show, but episodes nonetheless that I'm still entrenched in, if you will. So I can't really give you a good answer because it's still actually kind of in my life on a day-to-day way, just in a very much more smaller scale, though. So yeah, you haven't really left the the schmo schmo schmoverse. Yeah, schmoverse. Schmoverse. Right. Because you're still in LA. Your podcast that you have, Scoundrels Inc., um, is done with Sean Sullivan. Uh, 
and uh, Kevin Smets, I think, has taken a hiatus from the show. Yeah, he well, he's um, moving to San Diego, right? But uh, so he won't be on the show as much as he's as he's been on these past you know couple of months uh, that we've been doing the show. And then yeah, we also have um, Brandon, Brandon Hanna, Brandon Hanna, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. How could I forget? And uh, the show's yeah, great. All Schmodown, all Schmodown people that I uh, people that I met through the Schmodown, yeah. Schmo alum. I've actually listened to the Scoundrels Inc. Now you know I'm not the biggest uh, star. I'm not a not a Star Wars fan. I'm a Star Wars fan, but I'm not a uh, what would you could consider yourself super fan? Sure. Super fan? Sure. You know? I mean, yeah, I'm an avid fan for sure. Avid. Yeah. That's a good yeah. word. Um, I like that word. But but I, I've listened to your show. I was actually listening to y'all talk about the. Uh, Force Awakens, okay. In the sequel trilogy, the, you're, you're breaking each movie down uh, in this series that you're doing right now. And you talked about the prequels and the original trilogy, and now you're on the sequel trilogy. And I've told you this before. I think that the most watchable Star Wars films out of the three trilogies are the sequel trilogy films. They're the most watchable for me. Mm-hmm. I don't find myself bored. I don't find myself lost. I don't find myself um I don't find myself thinking wow these effects look dated. I just find myself enjoying them. They're very watchable to me, but to me the avid Star Wars fan might rank those 3 films or at least the latter portion of the trilogy as the least favorite of the Star Wars movie. Yeah, there's been a lot of especially on, you know, Twitter goes through these phases where you start ranking stuff, whether it's Marvel or Star Wars or TV shows or, you know, music, what have you. And right now, lately or in the past, recent past, people have been ranking Star Wars films. And I was looking at all of these rankings and, and some people would have, you know, The Force Awakens really high or The Last Jedi really high or Empire Strikes Back really high. But then have the opposite, you know, just kind of really just a myriad of different rankings and i was looking at them and i you know there's no there's no wrong ranking of a star wars it's what you get there's certain enjoyment you get out of certain star wars movies and so those are going to rank higher i think uh, on people's lists and i and i started to think that these lists pertain more to like a generational aspect of when did you first get into star wars what was the first movie you saw if you the first star wars movie was the Force Awakens, and then you ended up seeing the rest of the saga. Odds are, I think you're probably still going to rank The Force Awakens maybe higher than Empire Strikes Back. And to some people, that's like blasphemy because they can. Some people consider that the greatest Star Wars movie of all time, the best Star Wars movie of all time. I personally do. I think it's the best Star Wars. Movie. It's my, it's my favorite of the saga. Whereas I'll still rank The Force Awakens a little bit lower just because. I grew up on the original trilogy and the prequels, but not the four, but not the sequel trilogy. So it, I haven't spent as much time with them the way uh, someone else who's was ten years old when the Force Awakens came out. That was the first one they saw. They spent all this time with the sequel trilogy. They go back to watch the original. Maybe the graphics don't work for them. Blah blah blah. So it, it skews or not skews, but they just have a different way of of um, ranking their movies based on when they watch it, how much they enjoy it, how much they can relate to it, or you know they're, they're able to take in. So I was watching all these rankings and looking all, at all these rankings, and I was just like, why? I'm curious why someone would have this. Why would someone have Attack of the Clones at, like, number three, whereas a generation of fans would have Attack of the Clones at the bottom of the list? 
right? based on the dialogue or what have you, right? And the romance that didn't really work for people. But if you just if, – if in 2020 you saw Attack of the Clones for the first time and you were blown away because it was the first Star Wars, you, you might – hold that movie in a higher regard than most people because it was your first one mm. and you just have a fir- have a certain nostalgia feel about it and 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 it just holds as a hurt certain hold on you because it was your first one um and I don't blame anybody for ranking any I don't get upset or bent out of shape I, there's no point in doing that about Star Wars ranking so um it's it's just really interesting to see people rank these movies and um I look at it as like, well, I wonder if this if this movie was the one they started out with. And maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, but it seems like that might be the case, just based on a purely observational level. I hear you, and I think there is an emotional attachment to the movies. I mean, for me, I, I was a child of the early 90s, so the first Star Wars movie I remember seeing in the theater was episode one, The Phantom Menace. Yeah, And I remember being all in on two things in that movie. I was all in on Darth Maul. I thought this yeah. is the coolest person I've ever seen in my life. He's got the double lightsaber. Because, you know, before I've se- I saw the other movies ahead of time, I would have to have. Because I was very aware of what a Jedi was. I was a ver- aware of who Darth Vader was, a lightsaber. Maybe that's just part of the public consciousness at that point. But going into it, I was like, man, Darth Maul is the coolest person I've ever seen. Um, and Jar Jar Binks, I loved him. I like love Jar Jar Binks. Yeah. And I know he's very polarizing. In the community. But I love me some Jar Jar Binks when I was a kid. But I will say, something about that 2015, I think, is when Force Awakens came out, right? Does that Uh, sound right? That sounds right. Ish. Somewhere around there. I should know that, but yeah. (laughs) I think it was 2015, 2017, 2019, right? Isn't that how that came out? Yes, 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 yes. Wow, has it been that long since Rise of Skywalker came out? Yeah, it's been, yeah, it's kind of nuts. Wow. Um... But anyway, when that first one came out, everybody I remember, as opposed to Phantom Menace, which was like kind of panned even at the time, I remember Force Awakens, everybody liked it because we had that whole thing where no one was going to spoil anything. Nobody's going to spoil anything. Uh, The Rotten Tomatoes loved it. Critics loved it. Audiences loved it. Box office loved it. Everyone loved it. And now I feel like we look at it eight years now and we say, yeah, I think people look at The Force Awakens and they go, no, that was a good start. Had a lot of promise all over the way they established promise. all these characters. And and then and then it just got really divisive with The Last Jedi. And then the people, some people who didn't care for The Last Jedi ended up really liking The Rise of Skywalker. And then those that really loved The Last Jedi, some of those people then didn't really like The Rise of Skywalker. So you got two of your three films in the sequel trilogy you know, divisive in in some aspects and a lot of you know, a lot of aspects, uh, but then the fandom, uh, so yeah, and I think it's also the age of the internet. The, the, it just wasn't around for the original trilogy, obviously, and the prequel trilogy. The internet was just barely being born at that time, um, and so it you didn't have that the type of online discourse around those movies the way you had for the sequel trilogy, which I think then further flames um, toxicity within fandom, um, just in general, really. But also, but yeah, but particularly speaking to Star Wars, um, you know, the fans are very, very passionate and have a, a very personal 
um, touch with this franchise and they feel so connected to it because it's been with them for their entire lives. You know, we're going on 40 plus years. And so you have, and it's like this with a lot of different fandoms too, whether it's MCU or Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter, what have you, you have an idea of how it should go. And when it doesn't go your way, some people just get really bent out of the shape and and spew, you know, you don't know Star Wars. This is this is how you do it, or you don't know so and so a character, or you didn't, you know. And so that just wasn't around for the prequels and the original trilogy. Because you're right, the prequels were panned largely when they came out. Time has been kind to the prequels, absolutely, especially you know for I think our generation that grew up with them as kids, um, we didn't really have a voice in that until the internet kind of allowed caught us up to, for us. Yeah, Although for us. I yeah, remember yeah. 05 revenge of the Sith, everybody being like, Hey, that was pretty dope. Oh yeah. hundred percent. There's, that's the one that, that most original trilogy fans and prequel trilogy, trilogy fans are on board with, on board with as of oh, this most, most would say that's the best of, the, the, the prequel trilogy. I agree. And that's the one that George really wanted to make this, that, and the other, you know. Because Darth Vader and Obi-Wan Kenobi and Anakin, the epic duel and all that, yeah. Now, for the original trilogy, they did Star Wars, A New Hope, and then that movie popped off, and then they were able to do the sequels. Now, you can tell watching the original trilogy that, hey, they were reactive instead of proactive, right? Hey, we have this second movie, Let's write the story for the second movie. Oh, we're going to get a third. Okay, we'll kind of think about what we can bring from the second into the third as we're putting these sequels together. But, like, I guess I'm saying he was only planning really for the first one and not so much, at least from this what I think. He Well, he wrote a full story um, from start to finish but knew that it was too big to put it in a movie. So he chopped him up into three parts, basically. So wait, he and knew it was always going to be three parts? Yeah, he knew he wanted to tell three parts of this story. He just didn't know if he was going to be able to make the other two, let alone the first one. You know, he had, a, he, had a, he had a hard time getting the first one getting made. And then even when that was happening, he didn't know if it was going to be successful enough to make the other two. So uh, that's why when you watch A New Hope, watch that with the with the notion in mind that he didn't know he if he was gonna be able to make the empire strikes back and return of the jedi well the reason i didn't think that there was a, a clear plan was because he has a new hope it's kind of like are luke and leia are they gonna be a thing you know and then leia kisses him in empire That's not right to say that it was completely ironed out it, it wasn't okay so there was always rewriting and making adjustments and yeah, the, the Luke and Leia sibling thing wasn't how it originally was in whatever his original script or his story notes or whatever, but he knew he had a three-act structure he wanted to tell overall. Um, okay, I can get behind yeah. that, but I guess here's my point. So the first movie into the second, third movie, okay, we're changing things on the fly. Okay, we know we want to tell these three parts, but Luke and Leia, I think they're going to be the romance. Oh, no, actually, we're going to switch that to Leia and Han because Luke and Leia are now going to be brother and sister. How do we explain them kissing? Whatever, let's disregard that. Then we go into the prequel trilogy. Obvious plan and play from the get-go. Like, we know we got Jake Lloyd. Um, we're going to slowly make him into um, Hayden Christensen. 
and Hayden Christensen's going to turn into Darth Vader at the end of the movie. We know where we started. We know where we're going to end. Beautifully yeah. done. Uh, you know, well, well done as far as <laughs> executing the story. Now, we go fast forward. You have, since 77, so you have almost 30, 40 years um, of doing Star Wars, right? And now you're Disney. Bob Iger buys Lucasfilm. Kathleen Kennedy's put in charge of it. Kathleen Kennedy, who's produced all of our favorite films, right, with Spielberg. Like, literally all of them. You're on my Back to the Future podcast. She had to do with Back to the Future. She had to do with Indiana Jones. Anything that we love, she was involved with. She, she takes over this. They spend, how many, $4 billion? How many billion? Four, yeah, they spend $4 billion to buy Lucasfilm. They spend $4 billion to buy Lucasfilm. They're saying, we're going to do a new Star Wars trilogy. But guess what? We have no plan. <laughs> <laughs> well, we didn't know that at the start. <laughs> but as um, these movies came out, and it's like Colin Trevorrow is going to do the third one. No, he's not. Ryan Johnson going to do the sequel, and then he's going to change everything that J.J. did. Or not everything, but change a lot of what J.J. did and well, turn it this way. Sure. And then, okay, well, y'all don't like what J.J.? I mean, you like what J.J. did? You don't like what Ryan did? Well, we'll bring J.J. back. Colin, you can hit the bricks. Like, it just seemed, like, very tumultuous. And then I don't have to go into everything that happened with Solo, where they have a director or two directors. Solo and Rogue One. And Rogue One. Both, yes, both films had directors that shoot a large majority of the film. They both get fired. Ron Howard takes over one. Well, I mean, Gareth Edwards for Rogue One did not get fired. It still says directed by Gareth, but, yes, behind-the-scenes-wise... Tony Gilroy comes in, who did finishes the movie, wrote Andor. Tony Gilroy, you know, yeah, he pretty much finishes and and does um, stuff to the story that Disney liked, and and that's what you ended up seeing with with Rogue One. But yeah, and then Solo, um, Lord and Miller originally were directing that. They, I, I think at the time it was reported, or I had read somewhere that they shot like fifty percent of the movie, and then Disney didn't like it or whatever happened behind the scenes, and. Then they bring in Ron Howard to do the movie that Disney wanted to do all along, I guess, or something like that. It's all very, you know, secretive with, with Disney. It's hard to figure out what's true and what's not, what's a rumor and, and you know, what's false. Um, but, yeah, it just the whole – all five movies that they've made, well, save for The Force Awakens and I, and I, and, and I would say The Last Jedi, didn't have a whole, whole lot of good behind-the-scene chatter behind it per se, uh, Force Awakens, everyone was super psyched. The Last Jedi, I think no one knew how divisive that movie was going to be, so the lead-up to it was phenomenal. The reception was not. <laughs> right. Split the fandom in half, and that contributed to, I think, some of the wonkiness that you got with The Rise of Skywalker, and, and then, you know, they had their own set of issues, separate issues with Solo and Rogue One, so it hasn't been super ideal, I think is the most delicate way you could put what's going on with the movies. Yeah, it was. Um, I when I watched the trilogy because um, must have been a year or so ago. I decided to watch the sequel trilogy again. I've enjoyed them again. I think that Last Jedi probably my least favorite of the three. Force sure. Awakens the strongest. I like Rise of Skywalker. Uh, I even like the corniness that people say of an old lady saying, what's your name? And then she just saying, Ray Skywalker. I actually like that moment. I think that it actually worked for her character. Spoiler alert, Brad. Oh, I know. I know. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) I think it worked for her character because she was trying to claim her own identity. And I know, yes, she's claiming this family name. However, it's just kind of like, 
I like what these people stood for. I like what Luke taught me. Yeah. I like just because I'm a Palpatine doesn't mean I can't set you know, my own I'm path. I'm evil. I can. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I kind of like. Sure. Anyway. I mean, yeah. They're very. They're very. I still enjoy all Star Wars, but yes, I do enjoy the the sequel trilogy to varying degrees. But going from a, a franchise that did not really have a strong structure in place for their sequel trilogy, moving that to a franchise who's had a successful kick-ass plan from the beginning almost flawlessly through 20-plus movies has been the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Now, I talked about on this podcast last week, lately, the MCU films, I think post No Way Home, have not hit for me the same way that they always have. Do I think any of them are bad? No. I don't think any of them are bad. Do I all think that I would say, if somebody said, what do you think of Doctor Strange? What do you think of Thor? What do you think of Black Panther 2? What do you think of Ant-Man a 3? I say, oh, you know, it was good, not, not great. It was good, not great. I think it's how I would characterize all four of those movies. How do you feel about the last several entries in the MCU? Well, I'll first off say the... Infinity Saga, you know, ending with Endgame and or Infinity War and Endgame, uh, all those movies was it like thirteen or something like that, or more than that, 15, more than that whatever yeah. the number is, it's incredible. Um, I think all of that, the first you know three phases, I think such a lightning in a bottle. It's yeah. a phenomenon that will never be repeated. Like oh, I don't no. ever see the MCU recapturing that. Um, it was just a special, special time, man. And uh, I think people do look at these next phases of can they do what they did the first three phases. Uh, I don't think so, but I know I think they're going to get pretty close, and I'm excited to see where everything goes. So when it comes to the movies, um, I still have not seen Ant-Man yet. Okay. Uh, Ant-Man and Quantumania, full disclosure. I haven't had time to see it yet. Um, but the other ones I have seen, and I didn't really like, Thor, Love and Thunder. Me neither. Um, I loved Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. Loved it. I thought it was... I, I, thought, I thought it was, was good, not great. great. I thought it was great. Um, I, 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 um, uh, the sister's name is... Remind me. Uh, um, Yuri? <sighs> Shuri. Shuri. Um, yes. uh, much as I love her as an actress and loved her as this character, I did not... And and really, I get that she was probably the heir apparent to the throne, of the quite literally for the Black Panther yeah. throne. I did not buy her as Black Panther. Yeah, I mean, I, I I I you know what? It's taken me a little bit to warm up to that fact. And actually, in Wakanda Forever, it actually won me over. By the end of that movie, it, okay. she had won me over. But but there is I can totally see why someone would be trepidatious about that because mm-hmm. uh, I was for a while. But going through the movie and I saw it uh, twice in theaters. I've seen it three times in total. But like it's um, yeah it, it's it's unfortunate circumstance because you oh, know yeah, Chad know. would still be and it's just they're doing the best they can with what they have. I, I totally absolutely, get it. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and then. Doctor Strange, Multiverse of Madness. I actually, I really like that movie just because a, it's Sam Raimi, and b, sure. it's so just different, and I appreciate that. And it's you know dealing with Scarlet Witch, and that's and that's a really interesting aspect of the MCU that I like. Um, 
and uh, and just the multiverse, that type of aspect is really, really cool. So I dug in. I know a lot of people were also kind of wishy-washy on it. Um, so, yeah, there's it's not hitting home runs every single time the way the other phases were. Um, but it's just it's really hard to sustain that consistency. I mean, it, it's just – it's. And, and there's such a big spotlight on MCU because they're seen as this money-making machine. They just print these movies out and they make a ton of money, which they all still do, and they all still will probably for the most part. I think it's going to take a long time before people stop showing up to the theater for these movies just because of the built-in audience for decades and the love that's behind all these characters. The fans are still going to show up. Um, I think for a long time for these movies, unless something drastic really happens where the quality of these movies goes down, where everyone's where everyone's turning on it, where because I just feel like, yeah, some of the fandom is particularly not, oh, you know, pleased, and I think sometimes some of the discourse gets drowned out a little bit, little bit by the critics. Like I know with Ant Man, while I haven't seen it, I've seen a lot of reaction from general audience members. And friends of mine that have really liked it, but then you look at the critics and they're like, "This movie was not good. Um, what, what are they doing?" So good, not great. The villain, the best part, yeah. though, definitely right. the villain, the best part, hundred um, percent. So I, you know, I just didn't know like where, where you sat on recent ones. I agree, it hasn't captured the same imagination that the first uh, three phases did. Although, I think Doctor Strange was probably put in an unenviable position. Because it had to follow No Way Home. Sure. Which is such a... We need to talk about lightning in a bottle. Like You're never going to see a movie like that ever True. again. That's a once-in-a-lifetime Especially when you have like two studios working on something like that. And you're bringing back a legacy, I guess, actress for a legacy character like that. It just, you know... Yeah, it's, it's in one of those other lightnings in a bottle. You can't... I, I've seen No Way Home. Right, and I still can't believe that movie exists. <laughs> yeah, it's it's crazy. It's such a fan type of story movie, you mm-hmm. know, comic. Absolutely, you would find it in a in a Spider Man subreddit. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. The I got plot. This crazy idea. I got this right, crazy you know. idea. You bring them all back, and all the villains are back, and it's crazy. Um, and then they actually do it, and your mind is blown. Like and, and and how well it came out. So. Yeah, and you know what? Watching that movie, so I saw that movie in Hot Springs, Arkansas, and uh, <laughs> I was actually on vacation with uh, my wife, my sister-in-law, and her uh, boyfriend at the time. And I remember when An- I knew that Andrew Garfield and Toby were going to be in the movie. I just knew everyone, it. Everyone knew. But, Even they said nothing. You know, they're like everyone knew. But when Andrew Garfield jumps through the little portal. And into the uh, living room of, of Jacob Batalon's grandmother, I think, or, or whomever it was. Everyone in the theater was like, oh, oh, my God, <laughs> yeah, look at that. Yeah. There was some girl next to me. I didn't know who this woman was. I didn't know her name. But we looked at each other. I was like, oh, my God, can you see what's going on? <laughs> like, it was one Kissing of Kissing babies, shaking hands. Kissing. We did it. They did it. <laughs> <laughs> 100%, man. 100%. So, um, no, anyway. MCU, we'll see if it's on the right track. We'll see what happens in Star Wars moving forward. But, Frank, I wanted to invite you on here because, again, you are your wealth of knowledge when it comes to movies. And <laughs> I used to have a podcast back in the day where we would play this game. 
um, that I actually got the inspiration from, from the Adam Carolla show. Adam Carolla joined us on the podcast today. Um, this is a little bit different than how he plays it, but this is our Rotten Tomatoes game. So for first-time listeners of the show, how this works is Frank and I have both been assigned the same three categories. We have gone on Rotten Tomatoes. We've had no discussions with one another um, as to what the movies are um, or anything. Now, every movie, as people know, or have a Rotten Tomatoes score assigned to them. That's a critic's consensus on the film. There's a numerical value that's added to it. Uh, up to 100%. So it can be as low as zero, up to 100. Now, what Frank and I are going to do, we're going to take turns with the three categories that we have. And those three categories for the listeners are, the first one is 1990s, so it has to be a movie that we're released in the 1990s. The second category is Matt and Ben, which are Matt Damon and Ben Affleck movies. So anyone with both of them in it or with them solo, whatever falls under Matt and Ben. And the third one is adventure films, very broad. Very broad adventure films could be anything, okay? So Frank and I are going to take turns. Say I start, I'm going to say, hey, in my 1990s, my movie is blank. Frank, what do you think they got on Rotten Tomatoes? Frank's going to guess if he says 90, but they really got an 80. Well, Frank is 10 points off, so Frank is at plus 10. At the end of the three movies, whoever has the lowest score wins the game. Does that make sense, Frank? Because if you have the, if you have the lowest score, you're the most accurate. It's like golf. Right, it's like golf, right? Yeah, We're trying to get yeah, yeah, yeah. as close to zero as possible. Exactly. Okay, great. All cool. right. So, Frank, I will start for us, okay? <laughs> okay, okay? I'm going to give you the movie first, all right? And I took screenshots of these. That's the only reason I have my phone in my hand. Okay. Okay. So, we went with 1990s films, correct? Okay. Correct. That is the first one. This first movie, it's a great movie. <laughs> it's a great movie. This film came out in 1994. Okay. It has a packed cast, right? This movie has Michael J. Fox, Kirk Douglas, Phil Hartman, Colleen Camp, and more. It was directed <laughs> by Jonathan Lynn, the same guy who did My Cousin Vinny and Clue the Movie. This is... 1994's Greedy. Greedy. Have you ever seen this movie? No, and I've actually never even heard of this movie. Woo! So that's phenomenal. Okay, so this is where the game comes into play. You got to use the clues <laughs> that I just gave you. Yeah. Who's in the movie, around where it came out, who directed it. Okay. You haven't heard Look, of it. Is that good yeah. for it? Is that bad for it? I don't it? know. What do I'm you think gonna, you got? I'm going to go... 54%. 54%, you say. You yeah. say 54%. This movie on Rotten Tomatoes got a 32. Oh, 32. Okay. Okay. So Frank Janish is on the board uh, with a difference of 22 points. Okay. So you have 22 right. points to start off. Not bad. Not bad. That, you're, okay, okay. You're pretty okay. good. That's pretty good. All right, Frank, now it's your turn. Okay. Well, I'm I didn't know so we're nervous. Do, I didn't know we we're gonna have to do a whole preamble the way you did it there, Brad. But that makes sense because you're a showman. Um, <laughs> so this 1990s film is a highly anticipated sequel to a classic Spielberg film that was 65 million years in the making. I'm talking about 1997's Jurassic Park: The Lost World. Oh man! 
that is a great pick. See, now here's why the, the preamble is important. Hmm. Because it's a highly anticipated sequel. It's by maybe the greatest filmmaker of all time. Definitely. What do the critics think about this movie? Now, I will say, when I watched the Jurassic Park trilogy... I'll be honest with you. I kind of skipped two and three. I kind of skipped them all. I kind of only <laughs> really? like one. Um, I like one. I like Jurassic World. I think Jurassic World's That's fun. That's a whole nother franchise. We ask. Yeah, it's it's a whole it's, different world that we're living yeah, in. Really, yeah. um, a Jurassic World, you might say. It is a Jurassic World. <laughs> <laughs> but Lost World. Now, I don't really love this movie. I don't dislike it, but I don't love it. It's a sequel, which those are always hard to please. So I'm going to say it's lo- obviously it's lower than Jurassic Park, which is probably in the 90s. But how much lower is it? I don't think I think critics like this movie. I don't think they loved this movie. So this is the number that's jumping out on me. And I'm, I feel oh, I don't feel I don't like this at all. I'm going to say 62 percent. Wow. Well done. Oh, that's not it. That's not it. Oh. But it's but it's 54 percent. 54. What did I say? 62 you said 62. Wow, so that's 12-point difference. 12-point difference. And I got to tell you, Brad, when I said 54 for my answer, I was like, why did I say oh, 54 months. for Greedy? When you, And I was like, oh, because that's Dressport the Lost World. I was like, I hope he doesn't pick up the fact that I might have just said the first <laughs> uh, number for your movie. So, okay, I have eight points. You have 22. That's still... It's really anyone's game here. This is anybody's game. All right, our next category is Matt and Ben. Matt and Ben. So movies with Matt Damon. Oh, no. What? Just, I don't know. Ben Affleck's done some... He's done some great movies. Dumps. <laughs> he's, he's done some he's, dumps. Yeah. Okay, but, but guess what? There's some great ones. There's, yeah. Guess what? This movie, I'm not lying to you when I tell you this. I'm not lying to you when I tell you this. I love this movie. Oh, I love yeah. this movie. This movie... Has but a, did the critics love it? This movie has a crazy premise. It has a phenomenal cast. This movie came out in the summer of 1999 is when it debuted. It actually came out, though, in the wintertime in the U.S., according to okay. Ricky. This movie has Matt Damon. This movie has... Is it talented, Mr. Ripley? Ben Affleck. Okay, okay. This movie has Chris Rock, Alan Rickman... Salma Hayek. It's directed by Kevin Smith. This is 1999's Dogma. Oh, what am I going to Dogma. Also, George Carlin in the movie. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Dogma, Frank Janish. I'm going to say... 67%. 67% is what you say? Yeah. Well, Frankie Boy Janice, you're back in the game because this movie got a 67%. <laughs> Brad. This is your movie. I've, I've been talking- <laughs> what are the uh, odds? What are the odds of this happening? I think Frank might be frozen on my screen. So Frank, I think you might be frozen. So you, oh, oh no, oh wait, is that him? Can you hear me? Oh, okay, I'm back. I can hear I you. I can't. There you go. Maybe I hit something when I'm my in my jubilation. Well, how did we pick the same movie, dude? I don't even. You know, okay, this okay. is why we've done a show for all these years. Okay, so we're going to uh, 
quickly pull up Rotten Tomatoes. I know. I got another one for you already. I know what I know what my second movie was going to be because I mean two movies. You're between two movies. Me. Yeah. Okay. Now I got. But to so I. But you need to give me a new one. Yes, I so, have to give you a new one. Yeah. Um, or you don't have to. I don't know. <laughs> well, I don't. I'm not. <laughs> I mean, I like you, but not, <laughs> but not that much. Yeah, yeah. Um, what does Rotten Tomatoes say about me? Yeah. Wow. So what made you pick Dogma? Because I'll tell you, I'll tell you, because it was Matt and Ben, and I wasn't sure if, like, you wanted, it was either a Matt Damon or just a Ben or just Matt and Ben together. I know they have, like, a couple, like, a few. So I was like, well, let me go with the least um obvious one i guess but i know it's all dependent on your nature but also i thought because i didn't think because a lot of critics don't really particularly like kevin smith movies and right. so i think that would be a really interesting number to have as an answer um and 67 is pretty good 67 is pretty good i mean it's certified for fresh. this type of movie for his type of movie yeah this movie is worth seeing for so many different reasons but um selma hyatt is one of them you're telling me what a beautiful woman and a talented actress, but just lordy, lordy, lordy. just good God in heaven, beautiful. Okay, I have Lance a new one. Morissette, for you. yeah. Oh, Lance Morissette, yeah. She plays God in the movie. Yeah. So, okay, here we go. This is my new one for you, Frank. Because you know what? In the back of my head, I was like, I wonder if like we should have like checked with somebody about if we picked the same one, but then that would give it away. I didn't know how to do that. I yeah. said, There's no way we're picking the same movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't. <laughs> well, when it's such a broad like 1990s and adventure, like almost no way. But man, Ben. You know, still, what what are the odds? What are the odds? Okay, here we go. Here's your next movie. So this okay. movie was released Christmas Day, 2003. All right? Okay. It starred Ben Affleck, Aaron Eckhart, Uma Thurman, and Paul Giamatti. It was directed by John Woo. This is 2003's Paycheck. Yeah, Paycheck. Ooh. Do you like this movie? I haven't seen it in so long. I can't remember. I don't think I loved it, but I think it was like, oh, okay, Ben, you know, fine. Did the critics like Paycheck? Well, what does your gut tell you? My gut tells me 46%. Whoa. Okay, he just went out there swinging. Your gut says yeah. 47%? 46%. Yeah. Okay. 46%. This movie was panned by the critics. Oh, and it got a twenty-seven percent. Oh, come on! For a nineteen points, you actually did better than the first time. Well, that's that's some improvement. That's something. All right, and it brings your total up to forty-one, forty-one to my eight. But it's all right because you still have to give me your yeah Matt and Ben movie. So, this movie came out it's it had it's 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 a 2011 film okay we've got matt damon scarlett johansson you might know this as it's a it's a family movie it's called we bought a zoo oh man we bought a zoo so i've never seen this movie never seen this movie okay it looked like one of those heartwarming. Is this based on a true story? Do you know? I 
don't know, actually. Um, I asked that for a specific purpose because sometimes if it's based on a true story, they're like, oh, my God, this is real. Let's, let's, let's give it a higher praise. It might be. I don't know. It sounds like it could be. 2011. Yeah. 2011. It's two hours and four minutes. Two hours and four minutes. Yeah. Scarlett Johansson, Matt Damon, We Bought a Zoo. I, am, I will be honest with you. I'm completely lost on this one. But, but I think that the critics might have liked it. I think they liked it. I don't think they loved it, but I think that they liked it. Uh, this is the number that's sticking out in my head. I don't know why. I'm probably going to get killed on this one. I'm going uh, 69%. Oh, my gosh, Brad. Oh, no. 65%. No way. No. <laughs> Oh my gosh. That is just four points. Oh my God. It is killing me. 12 to 41. In one... I should have never said anything about dogma. <laughs> oh my gosh. I had I no idea. But I have played this game a lot. I have played yeah. this game a lot. So I do okay. have a bit of a competitive edge. Yeah. I try to think through these things. Okay. The final category, Frank, we selected was adventure films. Adventure films can be anything. Right? Yeah. I mean, it can Anything's be, an adventure, yeah. It, everything's an adventure. Every movie's this, an adventure. This podcast is an adventure. This podcast <laughs> has been a great adventure. But you know what? Why not go with a movie that the audience just couldn't get enough of? I swear to God, Brad, if you pick my movie... Oh no! <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm, we're gonna end the show. I'm not even gonna finish this. Show. I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave <laughs> this movie. Okay, maybe, maybe this will give us a hint. Came out in 1984. Okay, we're good. <laughs> okay, we're good. Okay. Came out in 1984. This movie was directed by the guy who would go on to produce and direct Back to the Future. This uh. is Robert Zemeckis directing Michael Douglas, Kathleen Turner, and Danny DeVito in Romancing the Stone. Oh, you know what? This is one of those movies I've been meaning to watch for the longest You've time. never seen Romancing the Stone? I've never seen Romancing the Stone, man. You try. Uh, I, I'm trying to get that stone. He's the one trying to romance it from under you. That's, <laughs> that's Danny DeVito. Uh, so this movie had a budget of ten million dollars, and it grossed a hundred and fifteen million. Yeah, yeah. That is a mega, mega hit. Without this movie, we would not have Back to the Future. So it's an important right. movie. But did the critics like it? I'm gonna go eighty percent. 80 percent yeah you say 80 percent frank janish this movie is certified fresh at 86 percent so look at that six points okay six points and honestly god brad i was gonna say 85 percent were you really I, was, I honestly wasn't i was like you know what let me just bring it down just a notch to 80 but honestly god, i was gonna say 85 percent so frank oh. frank ends his score with a 47, which is, okay. I think, really good. You went from 22 to 41 to 47. The last one really saved me there. You know? Last one saved you. So right now, I have 12. So that gives us a, a differential of, of how much. What's 47 minus 12? Is that 35, 35, right? Yeah. Okay. So if I get within that 35-point cushion, you know, obviously I win. So I got a little wiggle room here. But, yeah, you do. But let's see what we got, Frank, for adventure. You gotta play this like a like a poker hand. You gotta play the odds, you know. That's how you do this. All right, this movie 
rated PG came out in 2004. Mm-hmm. It stars. Where, come on, where is it at? Here we go. <laughs> it stars Sean Bean. Oh, man. John Voight. Justin Bartha. Diane Kruger. And the great Nicolas Cage. Oh, yes. You go on an adventure with Mr. Gates himself. I'm talking about 2004's National Treasure. Oh, my gosh. Frank Janish. This is... Okay. I love this movie. Who I love doesn't? it. I mean, I love this movie. And my quandary here now is I love it so much. Is that going to... <laughs> Translate. Is that going to F me? This movie's really good. I mean, have you watched the Disney Plus show? I haven't. I've been meaning to. I heard it's pretty solid. It's solid. Solid. That lead is uh, quite the looker. <laughs> um, Went to the top of the queue. <laughs> top of the queue, brother. Top of the queue. <laughs> um, okay, let me see. So we're talking about National Treasure. 2004. This is uh, still in Nick Cage, still a big movie star at this time, right? I mean, when has he not been? <laughs> I mean, there was a period where he yeah, was I know, I know, direct I know. to VHS in a Blu-ray era, <laughs> like, like he was making <laughs> some of the worst movies ever. But he was always good. Enough. Okay, 2004's National Treasure it has to be liked. It had to be liked because I don't see any fat in that movie. But I should play it safe, right? I don't think it got as low as a forty. I don't think it got high as a hundred, so I'm gonna play it. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm gonna play it safe, and I'm gonna say seventy percent. I'm just gonna go easy, seventy percent. Okay, seventy percent. And what's the threshold? Oh my gosh, no! Did I screw this up? I don't know. I'm trying to. I think I have like thirty-five points. Do you have thirty-five points? Okay, hold on a second. Let me. Oh no! Oh no! Let me see. Oh no! Did I screw up that badly? No way. Uh. Oh, okay. So. Well, what did it get? I'll tell you what. The audience score was. It was seventy-six percent. That seems wildly low. Critics gave it forty. Six percent. What? Which means that's a difference of 24. 24. And you are just 10 points within. Oh, my gosh. That ends our game. Or 36 to 47. I win. But by the hair of my teeth, they they gave it a 40 what? 46. How is that possible? What are they? 79 reviews. What is What? I, I almost refuse to believe that. National Treasure got a 46%? Wow. That's what, yeah. I want to see what the critics said about it. What did they say about it? National Treasure. National Treasure is no treasure, but it's a fun ride for those who can forgive its highly improbable plot. <laughs> I mean, what was so improbable about an invisible treasure map on the back of the decoration? <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, come on now. Um... Wow. Okay. Well, there you go, Frank. Man. Uh, you did your first Rotten Tomatoes game. Congrats. So you came within 11 points. What a Re- ride. Really came back, man. You really came back Ooh. on the action adventure category. You really came back 
with Romancing the Stone. I recommend it. And Frank, let the people know where they can find Scoundrels, Inc., where they can find you, where they can talk to you, and where they can Facebook stalk you. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at FrankieJ29. You can also, if you're a fan of the Star War, uh, you can find the podcast I do uh, on YouTube, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you can get. It's Scoundrels, Inc., I-N-C, like Incorporated, Scoundrels Incorporated, Scoundrels Inc., I-N-C. And uh, we just have, it's a pretty rowdy time. It's not so much, um, uh, you know, it's not like a turn-based type of conversation. You go, then I go, then you go. We kind of, we, we talk over each other sometimes. We get each, we, 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 we cut each other off sometimes. It's good-natured fun, and sometimes we do get a little aggravated with each other, not going to lie. It's just like, would you just let me finish a sentence? But it adds to the good-humored nature. We, we crack a lot of jokes over there and uh, we don't take it so serious um and i mean sometimes we do but for the most part we were just there to have a good time talking about uh, a franchise movie franchise that we really love and that we've been fans of, of our entire lives and uh if you want to be a, a part of that conversation yeah you find us on youtube podcast feed if that's your thing as well scoundrels inc i n c i n c well frank janice thanks for joining us on the brad gilmore show man i'll talk to you soon thank you man Again, you know what? Georgia peach of a guy, Frank Janish, uh, joining us on the show. Frank, man, I'll see you soon, hopefully, my man. But guess what, guys? Look, we're about an hour and a half into this thing, and I think it's time to wrap this bad boy up, put a bow on it. This is the second episode of the Brad Gilmore Show, the return, the reboot, the redux, however you want to call it. I'm excited to always be here and share these great interviews that I do with you. Um, have some great people on the show. Have some fun with guys like Frank Janish. I, you know what? Probably next week, I want to take a turn. We're going to play another game. Um, I think my wife is going to join us on the show, playing a different game and talking about all kinds of things that are going to happen between now and then. I also want to stress to everybody to subscribe to all the podcasts that I do. That's the Brad Gilmore Show, the collection with Brad Gilmore. Back to the Future, the podcast season 10 is rolling out right now. Clue the movie podcast where we... Once a week, break down one minute of a time with the 1985 cult classic film Clue. And then four to five times a week, you can check me out at the Hall of Fame with Booker T and myself. This last week, we had Brian Gewertz on, and Brian Gewertz has a new book, and he was the head writer for the WWE for 16 years, I think, something like that, 16 years. And he works with The Rock and Danny Garcia right now, my good, close, personal friend, The Rock. And uh, we had a great conversation with him, and we even talk a little bit back to the future, which I always try to sneak into any interview that I can do. But guess what, guys? We're going we're gonna to call it a day here on the Brad Gilmore Show. We appreciate you for joining us. Follow me at Brad Gilmore on Instagram and Twitter, at Boat Gilmore on TikTok, theboatbradgilmore.com. And we'll see you all next week here on the Brad Gilmore Show on Demand. And I'll have a new theme song soon. Oh, Brad, what have you done now? Oh, Brad, what have you done now?